0: Welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Sacred Justice podcast. We are wrapping up our summer series where we talked all things, you know, art, TV, what Ben was even doing on sabbatical, what was he watching? <laughs> uh, we talked about a lot of media and kind of how we are in this era of the pandemic, which is not over yet, how Ooh. how media has shaped these past two years for us or helped us shape, maybe helped us shape These past two years, how are we understanding what we're doing here in this world on this planet? So anyway, this is the wrapping up of the summer series. I'm Mia McClain, and I'm here with
1: Ben Boswell. Yes. I could not have gotten through this last this pandemic without art. That's one of the things that I loved about Station Eleven to kind of throw it back a little bit was that it was a reminder. That whole show is like this is what you're going to need to survive the apocalypse. You know, and so I found myself going back to albums I love, singers I love, you know, calling Mia while I'm in my car crying to Adele, you know, and like singing the new Adele album, which everyone should be doing. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, um, and then like watching these TV shows that are helping me think through the world that we're in right now. And I just think we don't pay enough attention to art. And the church certainly hasn't over its history. And, and art is what we're all going to come to. In fact, and, and really the church, church ministry work liturgy is an art in its own way. And we need to start thinking about it as art. You know,
0: We try to was, make it a science.
1: Not, oh, yeah, it's not a science. Mm-hmm. It's not a science. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this as we've talked about, you know, what it's like to preach a sermon. You know, a sermon is art. It's a written form of art for for a lot of people they write their manuscript out so there's there's writing creative writing um you know academic writing Uh, that's a part of it a flow you know you got to have beginning middle end you got to you know all these outlines of you know where you're going to build to where does the exegesis go how do you capture people's attention at the beginning how do you bring people to a close at the end what are you trying to get across when do you crescendo when do you build when do you get calm and quiet and slow that's all then the performative part it's also an art that's not only written but performed mm-hmm. and then here's the kicker written and performed every single week with a timetable so it's mm-hmm. a lot more like you know what you would do when you were per- doing performances where you have a date and a time and you got to show up and put it on no matter what's going on in your life no matter what's going on in the world you know it's coming and you got to mm-hmm. put it um, but, but a the lot difference- of difference yeah you're creating you're, you're doing the same show every
0: yeah day. yeah yeah. Unless you're a comedian, unless you're doing improv, so the improv artists who do like improv theater at like Second City and United Citizens Brigade in New York, they are doing different stuff every week. But there's still a, a formula that they're fitting into, kind of like church, but it's a different show every time they get up on there.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then so you got uh, yeah, it's it's a piece of art that's got to be performed every week at the same time. That's crazy. It's a yeah. crazy thing to think about. If you asked a sculptor. I need you to create a sculpture relating to this scripture and have it make, make it relevant to what's going on in the world. And you got a week, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? It's crazy, but we do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of preaching is really bad. Yeah. Because people don't have the time to put into it, you know, and they don't, you know, curate it as an art, but yeah, I'm on a tangent now, but I think art and church, there's a lot of overlap here.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and what they were doing in Station 11 was church that's and art. art. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. Anyway, I, y'all will listen to that again if you haven't listened to it.
1: Yes. Or, I, watch, the or show. watch the show. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I got to watch it one more time this summer. I got to watch it. It's just it's it just brings out something. Yes. Um. So we're going to wrap this up this week with some other conversation about something we've been watching. Before we do that, what's going on in the world? <laughs> What is not going on in the world?
1: (laughs) It feels like everything is going on in the world. There's almost too much going on in the world right now. I don't think a lot of our people, myself included, can actually process how many different things are happening at the same time that are crises. I was just kind of – I was kind of like putting it together in a paragraph for some folks last night, and I was like, well, we're in the midst of COVID still, right? And it's a plague, a global plague. As big as the Spanish flu, m- maybe bigger, right? We don't know yet. And we don't even know what the ongo- long-term impact of this is going to be yet. Uh, I was l- listening to a podcast that talked about like how pandemics have changed the world
2: mm-hmm.
1: and changed how economies work, changed how society worked. Think about how people reacted to the bubonic plague and the black plague and what came after that. How they, you know, when the population is reduced, one of the things interesting about that is that labor be- gets more power because there's less labor around. So labor has a whole different dynamic in relationship to capital when the when there's less people. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that could happen here. That's one thing. Then there's church decline. Then there's a war going on in Europe. Then there's like these January six hearings. There's 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 housing crisis going on, yeah. inflation. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's one thing after another. We're getting ready to ramp up for hurricane season as if we didn't have anything else going on that yeah. we needed on our, on our plate right now. Summer, it just feels like every summer there's some, some crazy, something crazy is going on every summer around this time yeah. that we're trying yeah. to deal with
0: and the violence you know summer is when violence goes up a lot of crime happens in summer so i'm seeing i'm reading these reports out of certain cities baltimore this guy who owned a restaurant shot dead walked outside shot dead i mean part of six people murdered in baltimore over the weekend or something ridiculous and it's just i mean you just don't and i <laughs> They used to say this in church, but to get people saved, they would say, no one knows when it's going to be your last time, your last your last breath. You know, we don't know. You could get killed in a car accident, so come to Christ right now. But that's really how it is. You could mm. just walk out of your restaurant and you're gone, right? Yeah. Or a terrible car accident or um, anything. Anything you get shot up at, at the grocery store in Buffalo. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah, it's so much.
1: Yeah, Nina Simone says the daily struggle just to stay alive. Mm-hmm. That's where everybody is now. Even white folks now. You white folks have become the victims of their own white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. Like I mean, Malcolm X would get up and say after every mass shooting, just like he did after Kennedy got shot, "This is your chickens coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. Y'all did this to yourselves." You know, oh, yeah. now you wonder what's ha- why it's happening to you when you're at a country music concert or a a movie theater or at school while your kids are getting shot at school. You created this world, you know, of guns out of, out of fear, out of power. You know, it's just really sick and sad and, you know, you could die at any moment, you know, so time to get saved. You need to come forward. You need to come forward. We don't have an altar called Myers Park, but let's imagine that we do. And you just need to come forward and give your life. A lot of folks need to give their life to Jesus. I got to, I got to say that Mm -hmm. right now. Like ninety percent of the Christians in America need to give
0: right. Even the ones who think they've given their lives, <laughs> they re-give they their lives.
1: They haven't given anything to Jesus yeah. yet. <laughs> They're giving him a heart attack, giving him a hard time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking in the context of COVID about the just the crumbling of society and really looking at it from the standpoint of the two nonprofits that I have served on the board of for a year that I'm about to Resigned from, not because yeah. I don't like them, but for other reasons. But I'm thankful that I'm resigning because it's really been a hard year of trying to uh, understand, alongside of what's happening at church, particularly in the the way that our governance structure is at Myers Park. I've had a really hard time understanding how we're going to crawl out of this hole that we built for ourselves with all of these boards of directors that we expect every organization that is a 501c3 or a church to have, who is one, who is staffing these things in this economy? And we've had this conversation offline, but boards of directors came into being heavily around the gilded age. And before then they were mostly either wealthy tycoons. So men who just would sit around and, and figure out where money went or there were their wives doing the Salvation Army or some other kind of board who didn't have nine to fives. They were not labor workers. They worked in home. I mean, they care for children and things, but um, yeah. we don't live in that economy anymore. Right. So that free labor, every, every board that I'm on is a working board, meaning that we're not just at the top. We're also running programs because we have to double up to make programs happen. Yeah. And we just don't have the capacity. I mean, even, you know, Reverend Tara is about to resign from a board, (laughs) you know, she's like, I just, I can't, this is where, where am I going to find the time to do my job to have joy and have peace with my loved ones and to also serve on a board that doesn't pay me anything, but requires 10, 15 hours of my week, sometimes maybe more than that. And so I'm seeing the collapse as one of the organizations that I've been on the board for had to cancel some programming twice in the past month. One was poor registration and one was a COVID thing. And I could have told them to cancel this program a month ago, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a good person, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they just couldn't see that the lack of registration is has everything to do with COVID and that people are just not interested in what you offered 2 years ago or 3 years ago or 4 years ago. They have different needs now. You're wondering why certain faith communities are no longer contributing money. They can barely keep their lights on. I mean, we mm-hmm. sit in a privileged space in Myers Park. These Myers Park churches can keep their lights on. But the average church has a budget, a yearly budget of $300,000 a year, if that. Yeah. And you want them to give and to participate. Their people are working two and three jobs.
1: Yeah, and they're in competition with all the nonprofits in town just to say a stay alive at this point. Yeah. You know, so- so they're, and they're the ones who created the nonprofits and are sustaining the nonprofits. And then you're asking them. They can't raise their own budget, let alone give away to nonprofits.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, I'm it's just challenging. It collapse. We,
1: you know, we found that our our there's a study that they're working on right now as a part of the rebuilding community that our, a group of our leaders are doing, and they found that it it takes our deacons close to 20 hours uh, a month of labor, and some are in the, uh, some are closer to like 20 hours a week just to be a warm body in a seat, let alone to actually contribute and prepare for meetings. So we've been asking too much. And like you said, church boards and church groups were built from stay-at-home spouses uh, and folks and also uh, people with capital and time on their hands, right? So Mm -hmm. um, now we're in a place where almost everybody is a laborer or retired. These are like the only two categories in churches, and they don't have time. A lot of people yeah. don't have time to offer, uh, not to mention we're in the midst of a volunteer crisis. The people who would have the time to offer are exhausted, um, and they need their time with their families because that's the only time they have because they're working Saturdays, they're working Sundays. Um, it, I don't know what the future – I will say I know it's keeping my wife employed because she's a nonprofit consultant, and every nonprofit that she works with called her this year to say we need a new strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Because all of their strategies were completely eviscerated because of COVID, all of them had to start over again. No matter what their strategy was, they either had to revamp their strategy, create a new strategy. A lot of them are talking about board governance. A lot of them are talking about what are the expectations of the board? How do we work together? How do we function differently to face these challenges in the new era? Honestly, people who are not doing that are just waiting for the the chew to drop on their organization. You know uh, yeah and and I don't even know some of these some folks are going to find out it's not sustainable for them, you know, and the hardest thing to do is to say we've we our time has run its course, yeah, we've had a season, we've done some good work, and now we're moving into a different season i had a I was on a board that finally decided once uh, once and for all that they were done, yeah, you know, and it's painful, but it's part of part of the life cycle of these things
0: I feel like the angel of death because <laughs> I feel like I'm always that person these days. It's like, why are we doing this? What this is costing more than it's than we're than anybody is getting from it. Um, I feel like I'm the person who's I I feel my ultimate call eventually some years down the line will be to help churches close
1: Mm. and close well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can see myself people who've done that. I know yeah. some pastors that they that was their calling.
0: I I'll be the I'll be the the closing pastor. The other pastor's gone. That they retired. I will go to interim. I'll be like I'm the interim who's going to help y'all close and turn your take your money, your little money and turn it into a foundation that gives away whatever, whatever you know, money to grant. sell the
1: property and get do yeah. something good with it in the community, right?
0: Yeah, and and not just close because I don't think we need churches. But because we are so beholden by these buildings, yeah, and these governments, governance models, and I think church is going to look different in the future.
2: Oh, I don't yeah.
0: think church is going to be have that kind of nonprofit model, right? Uh, I think it's going to be different. I think it really is, in the <laughs> but. It's like roaches who are about to die. The kicking and screaming that's going to happen. It's going to be terrible to get people to really see that. So I'm like the angel of death It's like, okay, it's time for us to wrap this up. You're
1: not know, the angel of death. You're the grim reaper. Oh, okay. Because well, see, the grim reaper comes and tells you that death is coming. Okay. You know? Right, And then the angel of death is the one that comes on the, the day you're dead. So you could be both. Mm. But the grim reaper comes earlier and is like, hey, you know, you see the Grim Reaper, and you're like, "Oh man," you know. Now's the time. Yeah. Now we're gonna die. I don't know when it's coming, but the Grim Reaper's kind of out there looking for me. Yeah. I think you should change your Twitter handle to, you know, <laughs> Reverend, Reverend, Reverend Grim Reaper.
0: Maybe. Yes. Yes. I won't consider this.
1: <laughs> it's always better than confront whites. <laughs>
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it captures their attention. You said sexy headlines. It captures sexy the attention.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of a sexy headline, you know, on this, this collapse, you know, sometimes I feel like things are collapsing and then I'm like, are they really collapsing? Because if they, if they would collapse, we'd have people in the streets and things would change. But it's almost like things are only collapsing enough to enough people that it doesn't create mass movement change for change. Like Carol just got back from Seattle and she was telling me everywhere you look in Seattle, there's a homeless camp. Did mm-hmm. she tell you this? Yeah. Everywhere you look, it's in a suburbs, yeah. like imagine Myers park and in the middle of Myers park is a homeless camp. That's That's the, what Bay- Seattle's.
0: That's the whole West coast, Bay area, Portland. When I was in Portland, everywhere yeah. up that coast
1: folks can't survive the rent's too high, the housing prices are too high, and what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to survive? How are you going to live out there? And so these these homeless camps—it's kind of like that movie Nomad. We've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. People are migrating just for labor to these different labor sites. And I'm worried about the housing crisis right now. Not that not that not the same as the 2008 housing crisis, but right now you can't buy a home. No, people cannot buy a home interest rates are creeping up inflation's creeping up somebody told me one of our real estate agents says there's there's thousands of homes in Myers park and right now there's only four on the market wow four wow. there's no supply there's no supply and the average they actually it usually takes about you know the inventory is about like a month for for they they have the inventory is like less than a month right now houses are not staying on the market more than like two or three days right you know, and so people and people are paying a hundred thousand dollars cash above offer to get these houses, and and a lot of this is because the reason there's such a uh, little supply is because everybody moved during COVID. Everybody started buying houses. Everybody started buying what they could. Interest rates were lower than they ever was. Everybody was disappointed in their apartment complex, which was hiring raising their rent to to exploit people during COVID. Mm-hmm. So people are like, well, if I can, I can make more. I can get a house for $800 of a, uh, a month mortgage at 4% interest instead of paying, you know, $2000 a month for this one bedroom apartment, you know, so I'm going to go out and buy a house. So mm-hmm. they bought up all the supply. So now there's no supply. And then interest rates are going up. So the people who have to move and who need to buy and need to sell are in all kinds of strange predicaments. I, I mean, people are like sending letters to the, you know, s- to the homeowners to try to convince them In addition to paying $100,000 over asking, I heard some crazy story about one one thing one buyer did to try to convince the homeowners that they were the right people. It's just crazy stuff. Ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Oh, they promised to name their firstborn child after the homeowner.
0: Mm -mm, It ain't that serious. I mean, I guess it is, but it's not. This
1: is on the Daily. I heard that on the New York Times Daily. That's not. mm -mm. I mean, that's how crazy it is out there right now, and I just don't know what that means for the rest of the summer and the fall, especially as inflation continues to creep up, and uh, now we got a bear market. You know, in addition to that, so the market's not doing well. Yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. It is,
0: and I mean, I think people are going to have to go back to having roommates. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, I see that in some some people's future. I'm. I'm. fighting that in every, every
1: fiber of <laughs> you don't my meat. want to meat. go back to that. Yeah.
0: No, but I, I think that we also are in a culture, as culture has shifted, where everybody has their own residence now. So it used to be there were times in your life where you would have three generations in one home, and that was normal. So your mom would live with wow. you, you would be there with your spouse, and then you had some children, right? And so... You wouldn't have your mom has her own house and then you have your own house. Right. And I think we're going to go back to that kind of like multi-generational type living at least. Yeah. Um, because I just don't, I don't see a future where we're going to all be able to have our individual. Um, I don't think we're going to survive.
1: I, and I think I, the thing that starts to get me hyper upset is when I start thinking about folks that can't even if they even if they wanted to can't uh, become the kind of producers in this market that would give them the sustainability to live on their own or even with somebody else people who are living on social security people who living on disability you know this is their whole livelihood because they can't do the kind of jobs the rest of us can do Mm -hmm. and so what happens to them in the midst of a housing crisis and a market crisis you know, it, it's one thing for, you know, me to have to spend more money on a gallon of milk, right. Or gas at the gas pump. And there's a lot of complaining about that right now. That's, yeah. A lot of that is first world privilege. I mean,
0: it is, but still, I'm still pissed about it because it's double what it was last year. It's it is double bad. what it was last year. Okay.
1: But if you, yeah, but if you're a person who you were barely making it before, yeah, now you have to make a choice is, is it really worthwhile for me to work? Yeah. Because I gotta draw, I gotta pay double the amount of money that I was paying before just to get there. So I now what's should I even do my job? So I mean these kind of crazy calculations. I was thinking about, you know, that with the with the shortage on uh, formula. You know, what about parents who have adopted a kid? You can't mm-hmm. breastfeed an adopted kid. Mm-hmm. Right. So like what do you do if there's a shortage formula and you can't get access to it? This is just it's an amazing, we're in an amazing moment where there are just so many things that are in short supply that you can't get, and it's people are starving, people are hurting.
0: Yeah, Um, and going back to what you were saying about nonprofits having to change their mission ah. and their strategy, what does that mean for the church? Right? Mm. So some churches are trying to still have the same strategy they had for 25 years, 30 years, and even in terms of the nonprofit that I work for, one of them at least, They're trying to have one strategy that's that's purely like bringing people together when the needs are like people are hungry. (laughs) Right. And so church can't be bringing people together purely anymore. And we're going to put some ashes on your head and let you sit there and reflect when there's people not able to pay their rent. How we're going to have to change our strategy and our mission or die.
1: Exactly. Yeah. There's a it's it's like a different level of urgency around some things than we've had before. Church has yeah. got to think through that. What does it mean to be church in yeah. a time where everybody's hurting?
0: Do we need organ, or do we need? I'm not, I'm not just talking about Myers Park. I just mean in general. Do we need organ, yeah. or do we need to have a soup kitchen because that's that, that's how bad it is?
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And what? What? A lot of churches aren't even into direct service. You know, they're yeah. giving money instead, so they don't know how to do that.
0: Yeah. <sighs> well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a lot of problems. We can't solve them all, but we
0: can't. We can't keep talking. So about. one of the things that I actually told Ben to watch, that then he told me that he was told me to watch it, even though oh, I had already told him wow. to watch it. Wow. <laughs> wow! I'm gonna find that text message or something. I <laughs> know I sent you a text message that said, "You're gonna find you need out to with some
1: other Ben, <laughs> some other friend named Ben that you sent that to."
0: This no, um, special did. Did on. Did? HBO Max called Rothaniel or Rothaniel um, not Nathaniel Rothaniel like Roth and
2: Rothaniel yeah.
0: Rothaniel, <laughs> Rothaniel. Yeah. Um, I, I had heard people talking about it online and I was like ah, well, I'll get around to it and then one day I really was in the mood to watch whatever it was because I knew it was touchy based on what I was seeing on Twitter but I said oh let me watch this I'm in the mood for some like touchy feely you know whatever yeah. it's going to be I don't I don't think I really watched the Carmichael show when yeah. it came out, um, which is starring Gerard Carmichael, who is the comic who is birth name is Rothaniel, and so he's the one doing this stand-up act that's filmed and on HBO Max if you have it. Um, but I had heard of his name. I just never really was invested in whatever he was doing, probably because I was busy. With school or something, you know, you there are yeah. seasons of your life when you miss whole series because you're like in seminary or you're in grad school. And so I think it was one of those times when I just wasn't invested in television. Um, but this series oh this um, uh, special is out and. I didn't really know what to expect, Ben, and I, I don't know if you knew what to expect either. Had you heard about things before you watched it?
1: I mean, I kind of thought like I had a sense that there was some LGBTQ stuff going on in mm-hmm. rothaniel but i didn't know that's all i kind of knew going in and i knew that it was like a kind of a different kind of stand-up that it was more like something more heartfelt or something more preachy mm-hmm. you know and uh so i yeah i really didn't know what to expect going in and yeah. uh, i was totally blown away totally surprised i i didn't have any idea what we were getting into getting or we in for um but i was it was i was surprised i was shocked i was moved um you know emotionally spiritually and and also just thought god how did he do this Mm -hmm. how did how did he emotionally prepare to get up in front of a crowd of people expecting stand-up and do kind of like really what i would consider to be dragging all your skeletons of your family out of the closet and showing them off to everybody Mm -hmm. and talking about them in front of everybody That was, I mean, to start with his grandparents, right? Start with the two grandfathers because that's where the name came from. The combination of those two names. So he starts there. Oh,
0: it was relatable content. I have to tell you and pause this if you haven't watched it and go watch it because we're going to spoil things. But talking about, you know, the kind of culture of. Oh, I don't even know what to call it. You know, there was a lot of relatable content. So, like when he was talking about, I guess one of his grandfathers had a bunch of children or whatever. And I was right. thinking about my grandfather who had a bunch of children. He was married twice, but he had some outside children in between, and not in between, but like like he had two children the same age. But <laughs> it's just like thinking about, and I'm thinking about how like this man was, you know, a deacon in the church and praised for being so great. And but, but like we know better. But like nobody really talks about it except for behind the scenes quiet like you know those little sneaky conversations
1: secrets he called it secrets
0: secrets yes
1: everybody said i got secrets i've got so many secrets
0: yes and i was it was such relatable content i was like and and so to connect it to his whole arc and getting to this place where like he's you know coming out and he's experiencing some of this backlash from his kind of religious family. He's like, wait a minute, but grandfather was able to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: The thing that really blew me away as a, as a, as a man was watching it and thinking through how that never happens. Even when there's truth telling, it's almost always about women and not men. Mm. So like the fact that he called out not only himself and his own story as a man, But told the story of his grandfather's and his own father Mm -hmm. stepping outside of their marriage, you know, and doing different things, and then how he confronted his dad and how he told his mom, and you know, um, uh, that there's it's almost back to that accountability thing we talked about, you know, last episode. Like there's almost no accountability for men because for whatever reason, people keep keep their secrets. Yeah. And there's a culture of secrecy around their behavior, their attitudes. I had this great phrase uh, given to me by my mentor, of uh, Commerce, who she relates to this in a lot of ways. So I want to talk about her relationship to Rathaniel. But mm-hmm. she, um, she said that there was this phrase. I think I may have told you this. I don't think I put it on the podcast that they would say they had this, this term that they were an angel in the streets and a devil at home. Uh-huh. I, uh-huh. You said you
0: we talked. You said this yeah. last time we were talking about maybe yeah. a, domestic people. violence or something like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's the kind of thing. Like it's we out in the streets, they're a deacon, they're giving people money, they're taking care of people, they have a job, or they're or they're employing other people, and everybody thinks of them as really good human beings in the community. And at home, they're beating their wives, mm-hmm. and everybody keeps that secret because it's embarrassing to the wife too, right? So she doesn't want to tell everybody. So that kind of secrecy then creates this system of, of violence mm-hmm. then children get in, ca- caught up in the violence and then they keep secrets about their about the violence that they've experienced. And then they commit more violence to other people and then they keep that secret. It's just it's a toxic cycle, you know. Um, and so like like Rathaniel, like the HBO special, Maida has written this book called Womaning, and it's basically a memoir. And, but it is a no-holds-barred total – every skeleton out of every closet, everything that ever happened to her from the time she was a very young child all the way through her whole life and what happened to her mother and her grandmother, mm. all the way from grandma all the way to her and her children at toward the end of the book. And you just – like it's one of those things you got to – it's so heavy you got to put it down for a little bit and then pick it back, pick it, pick it back up and keep reading. Because the, the content is so heavy. That's how Rothaniel felt too. Mm-hmm. And she told me that the whole memoir is also a philosophy of life, a statement of life. Because her work is called Story Medicine. And so she says if you can't own your story and tell your story, and by telling it, she means every little bit of it, all the parts of it, mm-hmm. you can't actually find healing. Yeah. yeah. So you and, and the truth, telling the truth is part of the healing, naming it claiming yeah. it, owning it, getting it out there is part of the, and her great phrase is, you know, in our stories are our deepest wounds and our and our most powerful medicine. So we got to go into our stories to find both of them. Uh, so she does this work of trying to get people to tell these stories and write these stories down that are so deeply painful. They don't want to tell them. They don't want to talk about them. They don't want to look at them. And it's very therapeutic, you know, to go through that exercise hard. but And I felt like that's what, what Rothaniel was doing, you know, and one of the things made us, I said, well, I, as I was watching Rothaniel, I kept thinking, what's going to, what is his family going to think when they watch this? And yeah, What's going to happen to him? And she said, at some point you realize you got to let the chips fall where they may.
0: That's right. I I completely agree. And I thought I had that thought when he was um talking to and I thought about how I used to be a heavy blogger. So I used to write these essays and things. And my mother would hate them. I just I just why do you have to talk about this and that? And why do you talk about that in the essay? But I mean, it's really hard to have you to, to share truth with people and you can't be honest. And a lot of that came from I remember well, this is actually started writing before I, I did CPE. But when you're doing CPE, uh, clinical yeah. pastoral education, um, usually they make you do this like genealogy thing. This is this genealogy day. And I was in this program. It was me and my friend Carolyn, um, who was like a white woman mm-hmm. uh, from Minnesota. Uh, and then there was like, two Orthodox Jews and like one yep. man from West Africa. And we're all doing our family tree. And we it gets to my part. And it is so complex. And so when Rothania was telling all these different stories of his family, I think about. And even when I was reading one of your other mentors' um, books, previewing his book, um, and he had a section in there about genealogy day or something in his classes, I was thinking about how complicated genealogy, the story of telling our story of our family is. Um, You Mm. know. The, the Orthodox Jews had very neat family trees and very like okay my <laughs> grandfather's grandmother, and then they got they were only married once nobody was divorced and then they had children and nobody had extra children I get to my family tree, and there's like all these little side boxes and triangles and yeah I have, I have five I have four brothers and it's three different mothers and blah, 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 like, you know and they, they were like they couldn't even understand the complexity because culturally even if There is a legacy of some of that in certain cultures. It's really not as prominent (laughs) as it is in others, or at least they're not telling the stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: And so, what, yeah. And I think, and there's probably more complexity there in the Orthodox that's just not around different tangents and branches, but really just how people hold their relationships together, even when they shouldn't. That right, creates exactly. a whole other level of complexity.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: You know where there's like your love and your resentment for someone are all baked together, and you don't really know the difference. Yeah. Right. Because you can't you can't separate them from each other. So you're just you're re- are you resentful or are you filled with love? You don't know because mm-hmm. you couldn't tell those two emotions apart if you tried. Because you're just totally you feel all that for that one person. It's amazing um, to think through our family trees like that and to think through the complexities of them. But I don't know many people who really are willing. I think maybe this is a southern thing too. Like people don't tell the truth about their families down here. Nobody tells it. Nobody talks about their family truth. Mm-hmm. Every anything we can hide in the closet, we will hide in the closet. As mm-hmm. in the South, that's the like southern tradition. To, and they're very people are very adept at it. You know. Yeah. You know, we will get those skeletons in there. We don't need to see them right now. We don't want to look at them. We don't want to talk about them. Don't even talk. You know, don't even talk about Bruno. He's in that closet. Forget about him.
0: My, my problem is with this, and as Rathaniel explores in the special, is these are some of the same people that will turn around and try to condemn you for something. Whether that's like being gay, which is not an, a sin. Right. For us, we believe we don't believe that. Right. Or it's something else like you had a kid, but you weren't married or whatever the thing is. Right. These same people that have in my family that have illegitimate children, people who are pastors in my family who have other children outside of their marriages, turn right back around on Sunday morning and are like, you're going to hell because of X, Y and Z. That's where I draw the line. okay? because I'm not going to police your secrets. But when you turn around and you you start putting your foot in your mouth, that's where I'm like, okay, we're done here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's one of those places where pastors have to be very careful. Um, I'll I'll tell two stories on that that I think are good. One is that when I went through a divorce uh, and uh, in a previous church and— I asked, uh, and we put the news out, like we sent a letter out to the congregation, which is just like, name a profession where you have to write a letter to your entire community and employer Mm -hmm. that you're going through a divorce. Like Mm -hmm. only ministers have to do that. The shame that is around that is just Mm -hmm. ridiculous, how much they put around that. Anyway, so all that to be said, so you got to do that because that's part of the job. And uh, so uh, Lauren was going to preach for me the next Sunday, and the text was – from the lectionary, and it was on divorce, and so we come into the staff room and we're kind of debating, what should she preach on? Should she? I, and I was like, preach on that, preach on divorce.
2: Mm-hmm. She
1: was like, really? I was like, yes, mm-hmm. yes, preach on it. There's yeah. a reason it's in the lectionary this week. Deal with it. You know, open it up. Talk about it. You got divorced in your family. Everybody in the church probably has some divorce in their family. Mm-hmm. Talk about it. You know, be open about it. Don't try to hide away from it just because of me. But uh, it was not easy to sit there as someone going through it and listen to her preach on that. Um, but, you know, you do because you want to. You, that's part of what it means to have integrity. Sometimes you got to do the hard thing. Yeah. As opposed to this other story I've got where as a my first appointment ever was as a youth minister at a Southern Baptist church. If you can believe that or not ah! ben Boswell served as the youth pastor, You've come a long way <laughs> at a Southern Baptist church in Raleigh. And my, my supervisor taught me a lot uh, about ministry, but he and I dis- disagreed on everything theologically. And, um, he kept going on. He was just so anti-abortion, you know, just anti-abortion anti couldn't, you know, just couldn't come around on that. And, um, But he and his wife were going through some difficulties, you know, some infertility difficulties, and so um, without telling anybody in the church what they were doing, they did IVF. Mm -hmm. And so he gets up on a Sunday; it's Mother's Day, and they on that in that church they had this tradition. And everybody who hears this, I've told this story before in in a sermon, but every time you hear it, it's awful. They had a tradition where they gave all every. Every mother in the church got a rose on Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And they honored the oldest mother, the youngest mother, and the mother with the most children. Okay. And they all came up and they all got a special prize that day. The, okay. the newest mom, the oldest mom, and the mom with when the most When you
0: say newest, you mean youngest or newest?
1: Uh I think youngest.
0: Okay cuz like that youngest. could be that could be controversial too. If the youngest is like 14, which I grew no up in idea. a church where we had a lot of teenage pregnancy so Many that would have been interesting.
1: Us. This is a white church so they wouldn't want to do youngest. <laughs> uh, but they didn't do it. They didn't do us. They didn't do us. Did anyway, it was a fertility festival. It was yeah. not it was no church in there. That's And so on this particular Mother's Day, he he turned around and gave his wife a, and the choir a rose. And uh, so then he gets up in his sermon. This is his sermon for the Sunday. And he says, you know, he's preaching on Abraham and Sarah. And he says, well, you might have noticed that I gave my wife a rose. And I just want you all to know that after years of trying, miraculously, God has given us a child. We are pregnant. And he goes through this whole sermon on Abraham and Sarah and about how it was a divine blessing to them and a divine blessing to him and his wife. And never mentions IVF, never mentions the complexity of, of, of morality related to IVF and its proximity to abortion,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, as a medical practice and uh, as a reproductive health practice. And goes through the whole – and I just like t- – that was a moment for me where his – I lost all credi- integrity yeah, and yeah. credibility in my eyes. I just thought yeah. you're, you're just lying to these people. It's not a miracle. It wasn't a miracle. You went down to the science office.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: got you a kid. And now you want to present it as a miracle, even when you don't even believe in it. And you've been preaching anti about it for months and months and months. But he couldn't see the connection between infertility and abortion.
2: Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's
1: what I found. So it was it was bad. Anyway, yeah. I just think that's one of those where like p- pastors got to be really careful. You know, if you're going to get up and preach about against something, you got to have some integrity around it in your own personal life. You know, I mean,
0: in- in- integrity in general in your own personal life. I mean... <laughs> I think things happen um, and you can handle whatever missteps, however you have uh, misstepped in your life. Right. Yeah. But to get a, to turn around and to say some of the most egregious things that that particular member of my family says on a regular basis, um, though, I think I think he's gotten better since he was out on social media for having this other child. But um, <laughs> But it took that for him to even say something. And that child, by the time he was out, it that child was like eight. <laughs> it was something ridiculous, okay. you know? Huh? Yes. Yeah. I, I was
1: just saying, that's, that's crazy. Why did it take that long? You right. Know?
0: So it took, it took being exposed and embarrassed. And so I just, when I was watching Rothaniel, I was, I was just thinking of all the ways, as you said, men get away with, with certain stuff, get away with certain secrets that, that, particularly cisgender women, could never get away with. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I don't know how I felt at the end. I think I felt like I was glad I watched it. I felt that it was really powerful. Mm. Um, there were some people who didn't like his language in there. You know, he uses some, what is considered a slur. And so there's also this conversation about, like, who gets to use the F word can you use the F word if you are identifying as somebody in the community? So there's all these different, uh, there's these think pieces on the internet about, you know, why people didn't like it or, you know, but I I appreciated it.
1: I thought it was very powerful. I, to me, the thing that was so amazing is at the end when he's letting the audience speak to him and he's not just shying away, he's actually answering their questions Mm -hmm. or responding to them. And never does he just simply agree yeah. You know like oh yeah you're right or 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 take their answer cuz a lot of their answers are like cheap.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Everybody's throwing out like simple solutions, easy answers to his crisis and he's trying really hard to to hold space for the complex emotions mm-hmm. and the problems that don't get easily solved. Like no. Like as he says like yeah she doesn't accept me but she's my mom. Like how do you break relationship with a person and it turns out it's your, it's your mother? Like yeah. that's a different conversation right and i yeah well i really appreciated how he held that really held that tension and wouldn't go toward the easy answers and and he did that for a while before he kind of comes to the conclusion and turns it turns the show around and again that impressed me because i thought how do you prepare yourself emotionally to do that to be ready to hear from the audience respond to them honestly Mm -hmm. You can only really do it once. That's why it has to be an HBO special. You can't keep doing that every night. You can't no. go around the country doing that every night. It'd be no, exhausting.
0: That, that's hard. And I I also, what I appreciated was the silence. There were some points when he was just completely silent. I was like, oh, my God, is he going to cry? Is he like, what's happening here? It was just, I'm, you were at the edge of your seat, like, what's happening?
1: That's why it felt spiritual. Yeah. Me. Like It felt like you were on holy ground. You know, and that's what people have been saying about Maida's memoir. It's like reading it has felt like you're walking on holy ground with her. And that's what I felt like with him. Like if you really, if you really are dealing with the complexity of your father and grandfathers, and and their infidelity and what it did to your family and what it did to your mother, and then now what your your mother's doing to you, you're going to have some pauses to reflect. And he paused for a long time to answer those questions. And in that that space that he created created all this time to think for me. Like God, what would I do, you know? Or how would I respond to that question? Um, the silence itself was just a holy, kind of these holy inbreakings in the midst of the whole thing. Which I, that's why, even if he didn't, even if I didn't like the content, I still would have thought the performance was pretty powerful. Oh
0: yeah. Oh, I thought it was brilliant. The the the, the writing of it. Um, oh. Yeah. Go watch it if you have.
1: <laughs> people need to watch it. Go yes. watch
0: it. And it also just speaks to the complexity of the human condition. And I say this all the time, even with that person that I was just referring to in my family or the couple of people in my family who are just, you know, theologically and ideologically, we are not aligned and probably will never be. Um, there are times when I still break bread with those people. Yeah. And um, I know that they are different people to different people. And that's also one of the things that you learn in, like, relationships with people, in, re- in all kinds of relationship. People are different people to different people. So you might have one experience of your, you know, grandfather, and somebody else has a completely different experience. So how are you tr- convincing them that oh, your experience is the most?
1: People to yeah. different people. Yeah. God, that is, that's just such a brilliant phrasing of that. Yeah. I think about the, how that impacts church. Yeah. Because People are different people to each other as congregants than they are to their to their ministers. People yeah. are different people to their ministers, right? So, the way someone treats you or me it could be very different than the way they treat their family or the way they treat their uh, their friends and fellow church members. And it could be, you know, it's kind of like what I was talking about last week with the you know the, the 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 street angel and the church demon. You know, you how you relate to different people. Depends on the context and the person you're relating to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So this is why it's so hard for people to hold each other accountable because they are relating to a person in one way, uh-huh. and they don't—they can't imagine relating to them in the way that you're—you're you're telling them that they've acted. Yeah, right. So it's kind of like when somebody comes to a to a, a mother to tell them that their husband is abusing their daughter or, or son, mm-hmm. but the mother can't accept it, not yeah. because she doesn't believe the children even though she should, you know, she can't accept it because she can't believe that the person that she relates to would relate to others in the way that they're relating to them. Yeah, And that's just such a massive, such a hard thing to do because our, we imagine that our relationship with another person is the way they are
0: everywhere. And that's, that's not it. No, there is some essence of their being, unless they're a sociopath, there is some essence of their being that is, that is the same, but you know, I've had some, I have a mentor who I know quite a few people have had run-ins with and, you know, do not, uh, they've had issues in bo- both ways, not just one way. It's not always one way, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I, I, in order to maintain this person, see this person as my mentor, who has always been super respectful and help, helpful to me, um, I just have to accept that he's a different person to different people. <laughs> and that's just. yeah. You know, and I, I take it I take what I can get from it and I give what I can give and then I, I don't try to convince other people that he is going to be the same to them as he is to me. Right. Yeah.
1: You didn't have to talk about me like that. Oh geez. Oh, geez. Yeah. oh my God. No, I mean people are different, right? Yeah. People and people have different relationships. I have like It's like when you have those two friends who really like you and you like them, but they don't like each other. Yeah. You know, and you're like, I don't understand this. Why aren't you guys best buddies? And it's not the way it works all the time. You got to have and separate, create boundaries to separate your relationships out and understand they're different when they're with different people. Yeah. Uh, That's a that's called self differentiation. Mm -hmm. And people have a very hard time doing it. You know, they can't mm-hmm. differentiate their relationship with one person from how that person shows up at church, at home, at work, who they are to their spouse, who they are to their kids. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to do that work or we're really not healthy.
0: Now, you know? And like, like I tell, even I have a friend group that always has somebody falling out with each other. And like I tell people. If somebody has violated you in a way that is just egregious, it's completely violent, they have harmed you. That's different than we had a falling out over something, you know, ice cream flavors and we don't speak anymore. Right. Like there's a difference. Right. So if your husband is abusing you, I'm I'm not going to also probably go have drinks and act like that didn't happen. That's violence.
2: Right. But if
0: you're just, you know, going separate ways in your life. That's, just, that's a different thing, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's different. And yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind as well. But, yeah, Moy, what was – how did you put that? People are different people to people different people. People
0: are different people to different
1: people. That's a sermon right there. Near the plane.
0: <laughs> I've sermon. been thinking about that for years. It's been, I've been mulling that
1: <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, folks need to watch Rothaniel. I yes. think it's powerful. Yeah. Really good. One of my favorite points of that one, I want to point out, was when he, his friend tells him, his best friend tells him that his father was over at his auntie's house, mm-hmm. that he tells the story, I'm spoiling stuff now, so turn this off for sure if you haven't watched it, but mm-hmm. he tells him that his, his 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 best friend's like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, you know, I see, how are you doing? He's like, who are you talking about? He, he literally pretends he's not that person. Mm. Like, he, he's like, who are you talking He just pretends that he's not that person, even though he knows he's talking to his brother, his son's best friend.
0: Uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> it was the wildest thing.
1: Then he asks his aunt, and his aunt does the same thing. She's like, Mr. Carmichael who? I don't
2: know. Mm-mm.
0: Oh, <laughs> gosh. <laughs> oh, what tangled webs we weave in Oh, life. yes.
1: Denial's not just a river in Egypt.
0: Well, on that note, um,
1: (laughs) I got dad jokes for
0: days. (laughs) On that note, thank you all for listening to our summer series um, where we talk all things media and art and theater and film and et cetera and how it interacts with our life. Um, We will follow up with you at a later date. All right. Okay. See ya. friends that was our episode this week as always please email your questions and your suggestions to reverend mia mcclain at m m c c l a i n at myersparkbaptist.org until next time take care this is sacred justice